blue hymnal. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, God's word given to his people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Matthew 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. And then question 126. Lord's Day 51. Speaking of the Lord's Prayer, what does the fifth request mean? And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors means, because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do, or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, to forgive our neighbors. I remembered uh, this afternoon that uh, I was told that Lloyd DeBach is back in the hospital in Kankakee, having a lot of trouble breathing. I forgot to mention that in my prayer, so why don't I pray uh, just quickly for the ministry of the word, that God would illumine the scripture to us, and I'll pray also for Lloyd. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless us in this time as we look to your word and that you might teach us from it. And we pray for our brother Lloyd, who is back in the emergency room in Kankakee. We pray for him and that you would comfort him. We know that he rests in Christ and, and looks to him and, and is in many ways anxious uh, to meet his Savior. But, Father, for as long as you keep him here, We know that he has had many struggles in recent months, but as long as you keep him here, might he find joy in that and rest and comfort. We pray for Earl and Doreen as well, and that you would comfort them uh, this evening. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are considering then uh, the Lord's Prayer and this fifth petition. uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We've been thinking about prayer and trying to understand more of it. We've been defining prayer this way. Prayer is communication with God whereby we bring our genuine adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication through our mediator Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and all to the glory of God the Father. It is how we communicate with God But it's not, strictly speaking, two-way communication. It's not like two-way communication when you sit down to have coffee with someone else. It's not as if we speak to God and then he freely speaks to us. The primary ways that God speaks to his people are through his word and through his sacraments. But prayer is a means of grace. And this has kind of been a conversation throughout most of our Reformed tradition, whether or not we can speak of it this way or not. But prayer is called the the chief means whereby God applies the benefits of Christ to us in our daily private lives. So it's extremely important. It's how God 
throughout the week especially nourishes our souls. As we draw near to God, our souls are nourished because because of that time that we spend in prayer to God. So we can call it a means of grace, a means of grace where God nourishes us and, uh, and feeds our souls. We think of tonight's petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Last week we considered how God attends to our material needs, our physical needs. One of the ways in which we can rest in his providence, rest in his provision and his care is because we look to our Savior Jesus Christ and we say, if God has given us his son, then we know that he cares about us enough to take care of our needs. And tonight, we think not so much of physical or material needs, but we think about the health of our souls. We think about the health of our souls. So as the Lord's Prayer, as you go through the Lord's Prayer, it begins with God, his place in heaven, his kingdom, and his will, and then it comes down, in a sense, to speak of our earthly needs, and then, in a sense, goes back upwards uh, to finally end bringing our attention back to heavenly things. So we think about the health of our souls tonight, uh, and we do that through the lens of thinking about sin. For sin is the main ingredient that can destroy our souls. And God knows that. Jesus Christ knew that, and that is why the Lord's Prayer uh, has this petition in it. Before we dive in, just two initial considerations. The first is this. It's always important to remember that we are praying to our Father. So we begin by saying our Father, and that runs through the prayer. So that will become even more relevant later on tonight as we consider that this is a prayer for the children of God. And this is the, the rule of prayer that Jesus taught uh, to his people. Second, we must, before we think about this, we must consider our mindset towards sin. Our mindset towards sin. If we make light of sin, we will make light of God. And this is something that, that uh, I, I try to, to, to remind us of on, on a fairly regular basis. A lot of a lot of what goes into the health of our souls and the way that we are considering the gospel, the way that we see all that God has done for us, comes down to the way that we are viewing sin. So there's a, a theologian, J.C. Ryle, who wrote a volume on holiness, and uh, he says this right at the beginning. He says, He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. It's a good illustration, isn't it? To dig down low if you want to build high, to make a good foundation. And that is how we're thinking about sin. How do you view sin is in many ways a foundation to your spiritual life. He goes on to say, A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. I make no apology for beginning this volume of papers about holiness by making some plain statements about sin. If we want the gospel to be great, we cannot take sin lightly. If we want to have a life filled with gratitude, we cannot take sin lightly. And so we begin by thinking about that. What is our mindset towards sin? How seriously do we take it? How much do we understand that it is an offense towards God, that it could be described really as cosmic treason? Is that how we are viewing sin? Many different kinds of sin. 
that uh, we can commit. First, we might think of sins of commission, the things that we have done in thoughts, words, and deeds. One of the prayers of confession that we pray on Sunday mornings, what do we pray? We, we confess for the faults that we have done in, in uh, following the devices and the desires of our own hearts, the devices and the desires of the human heart that leads us into sin. And that's part of understanding who we are as uh, corrupt and fallen human beings, sins of commission. There are also sins of omission, the things that we have left undone. What are the things that uh, we could have or should have done in our lives uh, that show our sinful ways. We have neglected to do this or that thing, sins of omission. And there are also sins of a stained and corrupt nature. Even many of the things that we do that are well-intentioned and, and perhaps in some sense good deeds are still stained, are still stained by the sinfulness. John Bunyan, the great Puritan author said this, the best prayer that I ever prayed had enough sin in it to condemn all of creation. See, even the things that we do that we may think are good deeds are often, oftentimes stained uh, by sin. Thus, in this petition, what we need to understand before we consider it at length is that we are asking that God would impress upon our hearts how unnatural sin is. How unnatural it is. Now, of course, to, to a fallen human being, it is nothing but natural because of the corrupt nature. But according to the way God created us from the beginning, uh, sin is unnatural. And this is part of the lamentable nature of the fall, to think about human beings so mired in sinfulness. And so this is our central idea for tonight. It comes in really two parts. The first is this. Forgiven people still need to ask for forgiveness. Forgiven people still need to ask for forgiveness. And the second is this. Forgiven people ought to be forgiving people. Forgiven people ought to be forgiving people. So first, forgiven people still need to ask for forgiveness. We wonder, is this petition really talking about sin? Because we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So why is that word for debt used to describe Sin. Well, because scripture speaks of our sins as debts. We owe God something. We owe him as our Lord. He created us. We were covenantal beings. Even in the Garden of Eden, there was what we call a covenant of works. And we broke that covenant. We broke that covenant and thus we owe God. We owe God a debt because of our sin. God has not imposed this debt on us, has he? God does not cause us to sin. God does not make us sin. James chapter 1 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what? Desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth uh, death. God has not imposed this debt on us. Satan has not imposed this debt on us. Though he is crafty, though he is brilliant in the ways that, that, he, might, uh, that he might tempt, and that he knows the kinds of sins we may fall prey to, he has not imposed the debt upon us. The world has not imposed our debt on us. Not God, not the devil, 
not the world. The world may entice and allure. The world may appear attractive to us in many ways, but it's never the force which ultimately causes us to sin. We are responsible for our debt. We are responsible for the debt that we have. But of course, God has made away, hasn't he? He's made a solution. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of all the forgiveness of our sins as a wiping away of debt. It says this, God has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. From this verse above, we see that forgiveness of debt is something that only happens in and through Jesus Christ. There is no solution to our debt. There's no solution to our debt with man in and of himself. It was never going to be as easy as asking God to forgive our sins and he simply chooses to forget it. You see, that's in many ways what human beings do. Uh, Perhaps two spouses, a husband and a wife. Uh, As with the passage of time, many of the the wrongs that they have done to one another uh, sort of get forgotten. They're sort of forgotten and pushed away and And a lot of those things fade away over time. Not so with God. God cannot just brush sin to the side. He cannot just get over it. Man, because of his corruption, because of his uh, breaking the covenant of works which God made with him, stood before an eternal mountain of debts which he could never erase and which he could not escape. And so, of course, the great joy of the gospel is that in Christ... Our debt is erased. It's gone forever. One of our great Reformed confessions says this. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. He erased it. He erased the debt. And did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. This is Christ, who is our surety, who is our substitute. He is able to save, as Hebrews says, to the uttermost. Our forgiveness is forever, forever, always and forever we are forgiven. Hebrews 10, verse 14 says, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we're forgiven. Forgiveness is forever. And yet, in this rule of prayer... In this part of the Lord's Prayer, this petition, we are still told and taught to ask for forgiveness. That's what Christ tells us to do, to ask the Father for his forgiveness. And if you go through Scripture, you'll see time and time and time again that this is the evidence, that the people of God confess their sins to God in an ongoing way. Psalm 102 says that God regards the prayer of the destitute. Speaking in many ways of his own people, God regards the prayer of the destitute. Psalm 38, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Psalm 32, which we just sang, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now there are some people who would say, okay, well those are, those are Old Testament examples In in the New Testament, isn't it different? Uh, Since Christ has come and and we've seen the cross and we've seen the the payment for sin paid, our debt discharged, wouldn't it be true that we shouldn't ask for forgiveness? And there are some who have built an entire theology around this, not asking for uh, forgiveness. It's not proper 
for you as you ongoing, have an ongoing struggle with sin to keep asking God for forgiveness because you are forgiven in Christ. Well, it's true that we're forgiven in Christ, but there is more to it than that. There's a New Covenant example, I think, practical example of the Apostle Paul when he speaks about the necessity of ongoing repentance, confessing our sins. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 9. As it is, speaking to the Corinthians, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, that is, by a, a previous letter that he wrote, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There, the apostle teaches us that for the Christian, there is really this ongoing relationship with repentance. There is a way of repentance, and the Christian life is to enter into that way. It's not as if you, you pray one prayer in your life, a, a prayer of confession or a, a sinner's prayer, and then, and then you never have to think about that again. No, it's different. It's different. This is to go back to that same Reformed confession that we quoted earlier. It says this about our current state of being forgiven and, and, and fully welcomed into the family of God and yet still needing to confess your sins. This is what it says. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified or saved. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. See, this is the issue, right? When we sin, when, when, when someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they're not just assumed up into heaven, are they? They remain below. And to remain below means that you're going to have an ongoing struggle with your sinfulness. And so because of that, when we do struggle with sin, what happens? The fatherly displeasure of God is upon us. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we are not forgiven of all of our sins and and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But the fatherly displeasure of God is upon us. The light of his countenance does not shine upon us. And thus we need to humble ourselves, confess our sins, and beg pardon that God might restore us to proper fellowship with him. It's for this reason that in the Christian life, and particularly as we think about prayer and the Lord's Prayer and what this petition teaches us about prayer, we ought to seek to keep short accounts with the Father. Keep short accounts with the Father. Don't let uh, the, the, the running list of your sins and offenses build up over days and weeks and months. Keep short accounts with the Father. Continually coming back and humbling yourself, confessing your sin to him, and making sure that through his grace you are restoring your fellowship. The effects of forgiveness are simple. We've kind of named a couple of them already, but here are just a few of the effects of forgiveness. When we pray to God, forgive our debts. First this, the displeasure of the Father is no longer upon us, The light of God's countenance is restored, right? Second is this, there is, 
a peace that comes with the assurance of forgiveness. When we consider the weight of our sin and how serious our sin is, when we think about the fact that it is wiped away and gone in Christ, there is a peace and assurance that comes with that forgiveness. I had somewhat of a uh, personal experience that resonated with this as I was thinking about it this week. After I graduated from college, of course, one of the one of the big things that happens there is all of the student loan payments start coming in the mail. And I thought I had a good grasp on it uh, as, as all of the, the different lenders. And I realized there how foolish I was with borrowing from several different lenders. And all the letters start piling up. And there was one particular loan, you know, of, of the many that I took when I was in college. There was one particular loan that kind of was a different lender and a different name. And anyways, all the mail they sent me, I kind of just sort of lumped it in with all of the junk mail. And then about five months later, they sent me an envelope that looked really serious. There was kind of red writing on it, and I said, well, I've never seen anything or read anything from these folks before. So I opened it, and it said, due to negligence in payments, and since this is a federally subsidized loan, uh, we have authority to seize uh, from your assets money in this amount. And it just so happened providentially that it was just about every single dollar that Michelle and I were worth at the time. We had been married just for a few months. And it came pretty close to every single dollar that we had. And at that moment, I can't quite properly explain to you the knots in my stomach and the feeling of pure anguish. And so I started filling out forms and I was trying to get in contact with them. Anyways, two, three days later, I finally got on the phone with someone and it was, it was almost as if it wasn't even a serious situation. They said, oh yeah, no, that's fine. We'll just set you up on a payment plan. And I was thinking, why? Why'd you send me that letter with all the serious warnings then? But I remember feeling a peace and kind of this, you know, a feeling of utter relief. And how much greater should it be with our sins that are forgiven. There is a peace that comes with the assurance of forgiveness. Your sins are wiped away. Everything you've done that is wrong, that's out of accord with the law of God in Christ, is wiped away. And then finally, free access to the Father, restored fellowship with God. Broken fellowship with God is harmful to the soul. To be in covenant with God and to have a tension because of ongoing sin is harmful to your soul. So to do this day by day, restoring fellowship with God is like medicine to the soul. Forgiven people still need to ask for forgiveness. Christians still need to ask for forgiveness. And then secondly, this evening, forgiven people ought to be forgiving people. Forgiven people ought to be forgiving people. The second part of this petition is we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that might get people a little bit worried. Is there some way that that we earn God's forgiveness? Is there some way that we have to prove that we are forgiving enough so that God can forgive us? Is Is it we who earn God's forgiveness? Well, if we were to believe that, if we were to assert that, that would in many ways contradict the gospel, wouldn't it? The gospel is God forgiving us out of his free grace, cleansing us because of what Christ has done. So what we find again and again is that uh, what Jesus especially teaches us in the gospels is that those who have been forgiven and those who have realized the kind of sin that God has wiped away, those people will be unable to not have that affect the way that they live. 
That's really the lesson that is behind this. We see this, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, a passage that we went over a few months ago in our walk through Luke. And it says this, and it shows this woman that's anointing Jesus' feet with oil. It shows that she loves Jesus because she has been forgiven. Listen to how it transpires. There was a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in Simon's house, that's a Pharisee, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited, invited him saw this, he said to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. So 10, 10 to 1 disparity. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I answered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now see, when Jesus says it that way, we say, She's forgiven for she loved much, so she needed to love before she was forgiven? No, listen to what he says. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, Jesus says, you can look at the way that she loves me, and you know that she is one who has understood forgiveness. Look at how she is loving me, Simon. That is how you know she has grasped Forgiveness, because forgiven people are forgiving people. And this is how we ought to live. There's a famous parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, told in Matthew 18 and in other places. And and what happens in that parable? 10,000 talents, the servant is forgiven. The debt is wiped away. 10,000 talents, which, which is like decades of wages. And he goes out, after he is forgiven, he finds someone who owes him one day's wage. And he chokes him and says, pay me my money. And he says, be, the, the man who owes him says, be patient with me, please, I'll pay you. He has him thrown in jail. When the master learns about this, what does he say? You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt. And you didn't have the grace, you didn't have the mercy to then go forth and forgive someone who owed you far, far less. And he uh, throws him out. He throws him out. The point of what, that what Jesus is making is that forgiven people are forgiving people. And so what is the motivation? What is the motivation for us to be forgiving people? It's God's love and God's forgiveness towards us. You see, God forgives us, doesn't he, as a righteous lawgiver, as a judge, A judge who also chooses to love us as a father. He is creator, lawgiver, judge. And he is looking down at his creatures and he is forgiving us. When God calls us to forgive one another, he calls us to forgive those who are our equals. 
So if God can forgive us as lawgiver and judge, then brothers and sisters, we can forgive our equals. If we harbor bitterness and anger, if we show ourselves unable to forgive, we know that there will be something that's standing in the way of proper fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. But when we're harboring bitterness, there are ways in which our heart tells us that something is amiss. And so you may say, well, Pastor Dan, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she said about me. You you don't know what so-and-so did. And And that's true. I don't know. I don't know. But God knows all things. And God still calls his people to be forgiving people. He calls us to forgive. There are some here who have had to endure unspeakable evil at the hands of other people. There are some here who know brothers and sisters who have had to endure unspeakable evil. All of us have experienced things that none of us would want to go through ever again. So in calling those things to mind, when we're thinking about evil committed against us or against the the ones that we love, we call those things to mind and what do we realize? We realize that forgiveness in and of ourselves is impossible. We cannot forgive in and of ourselves. So in those moments, think not of the evil that was done to you or that was done to the one you love. Think about Jesus and the price that he paid for sinners. And then when you think about Jesus and the price that he paid for sinners, think then about yourself and think about the price that your Savior paid because of your sin. You know, I truly don't think that God calls us to, uh, to bring to mind the, 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 the most evil things that were done to us and, and to think about that and to ruminate on it. And then out of that, there will be some sort of synthesis that turns into our forgiveness. I think what God calls us to do is, is when those thoughts of bitterness come to our mind, think upon Christ. And when you think upon Christ, think about yourself. And think about the sinfulness that caused Christ to go to the cross, that you might be forgiven. And through all of that, say, I give it all to you, God. I give my bitterness and my vengeance to you. You will be the judge. You will be the judge. God knows the evil that is committed against people. You will be the judge. You will vindicate all righteousness. God knows all things and yet still commands us to forgive. It's hard, but as we think about Christ, as we think about our own sinfulness in the shadow of the cross, we believe that God will give the grace to do what he commands. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Let's pray. Father, then may you give us the courage and the grace to do what you command. You are a good God and You have shown your goodness to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you tonight. May we rest in you, nourish our souls through your word. Send us out then into a new week, uh, ready and fit with the armor of God, ready to show forth what you have done for us to be lights in this world, uh, to be salt in places where it is needed. We give our lives into your hands. Keep us safe then as we go. In Christ's name, amen. We end this evening.